Well, we're going to continue our series in the gospel-centered values of our church. And so far, we talked about what the gospel is. We've defined the gospel not only for the individual, but also for the whole universe, the cosmic implications of the gospel. We talked about what it means to have gospel worship, not as if we worship the gospel, but how the message of Jesus Christ impacts the way we worship. And we saw that every day, every week, as we've done in our liturgy, we need God to call us for us to see our need for the gospel, to confess our sins and be renewed. And so we're continuing in that line with gospel transformation. And we're going to do this topic in two parts. Today we're going to talk about the basics, the fundamentals of gospel change. And next week we're going to invite uh, one of our elders at West Philly, uh, Dr. John Applegate, a psychiatrist and Christian counselor, uh, to talk more specifically in the matters of addiction. How gospel transformation uh, changes the way that we are addicted to certain idols. So that would be the plan for the next two weeks. And today, we're going to give the overall over, uh, basics of how gospel transformation happens. And to do that, I want to introduce some things that I've been reading about uh, productivity. Uh, if you read a lot of books and a lot of articles on productivity and how to deal with all the busyness of life, one of the common things you're going to read is to make lists, to make a to-do list. And as you accomplish one thing, check them off because uh, the psychology of it is if you see yourself checking off something that you need to get done, there's going to be a sense of accomplishment. And as you see that Thing checked off, you're going to be motivated to move on to the next. And so there is this inherent power in these to-do lists. But at the same time, it also has the opposite effect. It's like a double-edged sword where the list itself can help you and motivate you and propel you. But on the other hand, if you're like me and you look at your to-do list, you're going to be overwhelmed. In my phone, on my to-do list, there's a reminder to make another reminder. If you look at my phone, there's so many different kinds of lists that I don't even know where is what. So at some points, I just say, forget it. And I don't even look at my list anymore. So you can have the same list, and you can have two different responses. It's like a double-edged sword. And the reason why I bring this up is because our passage this morning, Paul, he is writing out a list. A list of things that Christians should be and list of things that Christians should not be. So you can examine with me in verse 5. Here are the things that a Christian should not be. He writes, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. Continuing in verse 8, he says, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk and lying. And he sums it all up. Put off the old self with its practices. Now that's the list of the things that Christians are not supposed to do. And if you look down in verse 12, he writes the things that we are supposed to do and be. Writing, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving them as the Lord has forgiven you. 
And he says in this summary statement, and put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So likewise, in a list like this, we can have two kinds of responses. For some, we can look at these things and we can see ourselves sexual immorality, check. Obscene talking, check. Because you don't see yourself doing these things and you can become very motivated. You can look at patience and say, I'm not a very angry guy. I'm a pretty patient person. You check that off and that encourages you and motivates you. And if it goes wrong, you even become proud, self-sufficient. And that's one response to a list like this. The other response is, every time you look at that word, sexual immorality, you don't look at how victorious you are. You are being beridden with guilt. Looking at that one time when you looked at that website way too long or looking at those past experiences and your flaws. When you look at patience, you're reminded of how impatient you were this morning on the way to church. So it can have two kinds of effects when you look at the same exact list. Now, wherever you find yourself on this spectrum, the common thread between, within all people is the need that we are going to need something radical, a gospel-induced transformation if we are to adhere to these things. Because one step out of the way, you can become very proud and self-sufficient. One step in the other direction, you can become beridden with guilt, overwhelmed, and simply just want to quit the Christian life. And so the question this morning is, how do we not only balance the two, but have real gospel-induced transformation in our lives in light of this gospel? If you know a little bit about your American history, uh, Benjamin Franklin, he was the, the model Renaissance man in the 1700s. He was an author, a painter, an inventor, politician, ambassador. He founded many of the streets, the hospitals, and the libraries in our city. He even wrote some of the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. And though he did all of these great things, he also had a very checkered past. Uh, at the age of 17, he ran away from home simply because he had an argument with his brother, and he never came back home. He's also the father of an illegit uh, illegitimate son uh, that not many people know about. And these are all things that he writes in his autobiography. And another thing that he writes about was after these things, after reflecting on all of his checkered past, he sat down one day and he says, you know, I want to change. I want to become a better man. So in his journal, he writes what we call the 12 virtues. And so he writes the 12 things that he wants to see himself be. And some of these things are silence. That's considered a virtue. How much of a virtue that would be today. And in that uh, virtue, he writes, uh, whenever there is an opportunity to, to be uplifting, that's when I talk. When it is a trifling conversation, I will be silent. The next virtue he writes is frugality, meaning he's not going to make any expense unless it's going to benefit others or unless I really need it. He writes sincerity, tranquility, industry, order, cleanliness, and moderation. And being the meticulous person uh, that he was, here's a chart of what he has. And on one column, he writes all of the virtues— and on another column on the row, he writes every day of the week. 
And so he would observe his day, and if on that particular day he, is, uh, he accomplishes that virtue, he would leave it blank. But if he fails in that virtue, he would write a little star. And what he would do is he would, prog- uh, he would monitor the progress of how well he is performing these virtues every day. And his hope is, and he writes, that by the end of his life, he will see a blank notebook. And he will see himself as being this virtuous man. Now, what happened afterwards, after he had this idea and he started monitoring, he saw a little bit of improvement in his life. So after a few weeks, he takes this journal and he goes to his Quaker friend and he says, look at this. Once I started to do this, I saw in myself some change. And you know what his uh, Quaker friend said? He says, are you serious? You're not any of these at all. (laughs) You haven't changed one bit in my eyes. And to that, he was shocked because in his own mind, he saw himself becoming more silent when needed, to become more frugal at times. But his friend saw no change at all. And at the end of his life, Ben Franklin, he writes in his journal that he felt like he was a speckled axe, that no matter how much he grinds it to smoothen himself up, that there's always some kind of blemish that he will never get rid of. And so that reminds us, and that tells us how a lot of us, we operate. There are certain things in our lives that we want to change. We want to improve. You know yourselves. You know the things that you struggle with. You know you need to be more patient, or perhaps I suggest a word that's listed here that not many people talk about, to be meek. When was the last time that your prayer request was, Lord, help me to become meek towards my neighbor? But our tendency is to focus on one thing at a time so much that we forget about the other things and we are oblivious to the overall person that we are. And what we have is this tunnel vision effect. A lot of the times we see more check marks than blanks. And it can discourage us. It can be overwhelming. And over time, you just simply want to give up. And isn't that the Christian life for many of us? We know there are certain sins, certain things about ourselves that we need to change. And we focus on one thing at a time saying, okay, I need to change in this area of my life. But time and time again, we fall and we fail and it becomes discouraging. So how does the gospel create this transformation from the inside out as we sung? And rather than simply changing your behavior, what we call behavior modification, we're going to see how Paul lays out a gospel-centered view of change. He does this in two ways. Number one, this is the heading for this morning. Number one is we need to have a complete death to ourselves. Complete death to ourselves. And number two, a complete desire for heavenly things, for heavenly matters. And they're simple things, but as we look into it, we're going to see that some of these things are very profound. We need to have a complete death to ourselves and a complete desire for heavenly matters. To give context of this uh, Colossians passage, uh, there are four chapters in the book of Colossians, chapters 1 through 4. And if you lay it out, our chapter in chapter 3, it's right on the hinge point, right in the middle of this book. And the way that it's formatted is the first two chapters are what we call the indicatives of the gospel. 
indicatives, the declarative statements of what God has done for us and who Jesus is for us. Good as done. And starting in chapter 3, we are now entering the imperatives of the gospel. In light of what God has done, in light of who Jesus is for us, this is how we are to live. If indeed chapters 1 and 2 are true for you. So we read of passages and verses, for example, Colossians chapter 3, in the imperative section, such as, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. How often do we use that verse to demand obedience, but we separate that from the indicative of how God is a father to you who looks after you and loves you. That's simply one example, how we can separate the two. And it's crucially important for us that when it comes to living a life that is pleasing to God, we must get the sequence right. Because as soon as you reverse the sequence and the imperative comes first, you're going to get every other religion in this world, and you're going to adhere to every other voice in this world that says, first you must be like this, First, you must accomplish this. Then you will reap the benefits. Then you will reap the fruits of your efforts. And it's a very deceptive thing if we switch it or if we isolate the imperatives, all these virtues, apart from what Christ has done. Christianity is the only religion that makes the sequence for the indicative, regardless of who you are. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you are going to do, all the mistakes, still God loves you. Still God sends his son for you. Still God pursues you week in and week out with the gospel. And so in turn, we must every day, regardless of whatever you are doing in life, to begin with that indicative if you want to change. When you wake up in the morning, and you see all the things that you have to do today to be a faithful student on campus, to be a faithful worker, we must not separate the imperatives from the indicatives. We must wake up and say, I am unlovable. I am rebellious. The first thought in my mind this morning is not God, and yet God still loves me, and he is for me, and nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Once you start with that indicative, then wake up. Make your coffee. Do you see that we, not, we cannot separate the imperative from the indicative? What are these indicatives? We see Colossians chapter 1, the indicative section. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things. This is you. This is us. He has now, present, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to, the future. This is why he's doing what he's doing, so that you can be holy and blameless and above reproach before them. Do you see the sequence? Who you once were, what Christ has done now, so that you can be. Another example, Colossians chapter 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, who you were, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. And he nailed it to the cross. And so now as we turn to the imperatives in chapter 3 of how we are to live as Christians, we have to remember always the indicative. And that is how radical gospel transformation will take place. That's how you're going to be spirit-filled. That's how you're going to be people-loving, God-honoring, gospel-spreading, filled with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, and so forth. If then, Paul writes in verse 1 of our passage, if you have been raised with Christ, now then, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above in heaven where Christ dwells. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And now when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Paul's using resurrection language. You have died and have been buried in Christ, and now you are alive with him. And when he's doing that, he's not simply describing what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago, as true as it is. But he's using the language of death and resurrection because that's what needs to happen in our lives if we want change. It has to be as extreme as dying to yourself, as extreme as being created new. It's not behavior modification. It's not adding a simple aspect of Christianity onto your life. It's not adding Sunday morning to your schedules. It's not adding 30 minutes of prayer maybe once every day. It's not changing this. It's not just stopping this and adding this. That's not what he's talking about because that's just tacking on one thing and taking out on another. What he's saying, you need to completely die to yourself fully. You need to give up on everything that you once stood for. Only when that happens can you be made alive with Christ. What we call it is the Christian Copernican revolution where up to this point, everything you've done, everything you said, it somehow involves you, how you're the center of your universe. But once you die to yourself, Christ becomes the center. Uh, yesterday, I was at my uh, sister's wedding. She got married yesterday. And at every wedding, you always see people reuniting uh, with friends that they knew from the past. And I met a lot of her friends whom I knew when I was a young kid. And what happens is they always say things like, oh, you haven't changed or you changed so much. And people get very uh, self-conscious uh, of showing up uh, to their old past friends. And me being selfish and self-centered as I am, I started thinking about my own wedding and my own friends. And I remember at my own wedding reception, I met my friends from high school whom I haven't seen uh, in over 10 years. And a lot of these friends came in. A lot of them, they haven't changed. Some of them, they changed a lot. And one particular friend, his name is Bill. As soon as I saw him, I said, wow, Bill, you haven't changed at all. But then as soon as I started talking to, with him, I realized he changed a lot. Because growing up in high school, none of us, we were Christian. But one of the first things that he told me, knowing that I'm a pastor, he says, Luke, we need to pray for our friends. And I'm like, What? We used to make cherry bombs at people's houses and run around in graveyards thinking that we're uh, uh, these cool uh, uh, people, mischievous people. And the first thing you tell them is, we need to pray for Jason and Dave. 
there was a radical transformation that didn't come about simply because he changed one thing or the next, but something from the inside out where his priority was completely reversed. When that happens, that's when change happens. And I could tell right away after I heard the first words that come out, that came out of his mouth that he's a different person. And we cannot fool ourselves if we simply add something Christian into our lives, thinking that true change is going to happen. Unless you completely die to yourself, every single decision you make for yourself, unless you let that go, this change won't happen. In verse 3, that's why Paul writes, you must die. Because your life is now hidden with Christ. The assumption is if your life is hidden with Christ, you must first die to yourself. My question is, how many of us, we skip that dying part? And we simply want to be Christian. We simply want to be Christian parents, Christian workers, and exhibit all these great things to be a light. But we forget that crucial step of let go of that addiction. Let go of that idol. Let go of those things that are preventing your relationship with God. Then seek the things above. For what does light have to do with darkness? They cannot mix. In the gospel, you have died. And no matter how much you try to modify your behavior, you will simply end up in frustration. It's not simply adding things onto your life, but it's a complete reversal. If you read the series Chronicles of Narnia, there's a, a boy. His name is Eustace Scrub, if you remember who he is. And in this story, he's portrayed as this very arrogant, very proud, self-centered boy. And C.S. Lewis writes, he's the kind that when he enters the room, everyone else, without saying a word, they agree that they don't want to be with him. And they say, and he says, there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Now, Lewis explains through Eustace what needs to take place if gospel change is going to happen in our lives. Eustace, while in the land of Narnia, what happens is he wanders into a cave. And in that cave, he finds piles and piles of treasure, gold, jewels, treasure chests. And he simply leaves his friends behind. And in his greed, he simply dives into all of these riches and enjoys all of it. And he comes across this one golden bracelet. And he puts it on, and he's admiring this gold bracelet. And he's just swimming around in all of these riches. And C.S. Lewis writes, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. And so when he wakes up, at first, Eustace, seeing that he is now a dragon, he loves being the biggest and baddest animal and creature. And he flies around and enjoys being his new dragon identity. But after some time, he finds himself very lonely, starts to miss his friends. And to make things worse, the bracelet that was on his uh, hand is so tight on his leg that it gives him this excruciating pain. And so after some time, he tries to, what he says, undragon himself by tearing out his scales. 
and he tries again and again. But every single time he rips out his scales, they grow back. And you can see in his eye just how miserable and how uh, desperate he is. And the reason why Lewis writes that, because he's depicting us very powerfully here, because we try so desperately to become the person we want to be, right? Whether for ourselves, for someone else, I want to be a good spouse, I want to be the best son, I want to be this for myself. And we have that picture in our minds, we try so hard, and we rip out whatever scales we can by changing our behavior, by trying harder at this. And what he's saying is, at the end of the day, your scales will grow back because your inside, the whole radical aspect, the core being of yourself has not changed. What we say here at Renewal is, how foolish is it if you see an apple tree that's not bearing fruit, you staple an apple onto a branch. And saying, look, change. Unless the root changes, you will not have gospel transformation. So when he was at the lowest of his lows, he recounts what happened later. And he says, Aslan came along. Aslan came along, and the lion said, and he says, I don't know if it spoke, but he said, you're going to have to let me undress you. He says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was so desperate now that I simply lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. And I'll let Lewis finish the story. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off, you know? If you pick the scab out of a sore place, it hurts like Billy O, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass. Only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. At this point, you would assume that he's changed, right? Because his scales are gone. He looks not like a dragon anymore. We get as far as this, maybe. What C.S. Lewis does, he adds one more event. And then Aslan caught a hold of him. And I don't like that much, but I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water, and it stung like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. Track with me. Is there a particular bracelet that is on your arm right now? And you're so focused on that, that addiction, that idolatry. And you're so consumed by that, and you try so hard to rip out the scales time and time again. And perhaps outside, in an outward appearance, maybe you do get the scales off and you're happy, but you find out that it's going to grow back. And it's going to require you to lay on your back and say, 
Jesus, if you don't go inside of my heart, it's not going to happen. We have to let go. Let go of the life that you are so much idolizing. The things that you want for yourself. And once you let go and say, Jesus, have it all. You're going to see yourself change. You're not going to be the person that you once were. And it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt for a moment. But then soon you're going to be swimming in the Holy Spirit. Having these affections in your heart that you never knew existed. There's nothing like it. But only when you die to yourself. Stop trying to change one thing and add this and this. But whole self, what Paul writes. You're not just simply adding something on in Christianity. You're not just adding Christian friends. You're not just adding community group. You're giving your whole life. My question for us in light of these verses is, what are the things in your life that you're still holding on to that you know God does not want you to hold on to? And when are you going to let go and lay on your back and say, God, come. Come in my heart and change me from the inside out. Next point. Not only do we have to have a complete death of ourselves, we need to have a complete desire for heavenly matters. Heavenly matters. Once we die to ourselves, that's when change happens. That's when everything changes. The way you view your life, the way you view your work, your relationships, the way you raise your children, everything changes. It no longer becomes about you. Decisions aren't made with yourself in mind all the time. And Paul, he's the perfect evidence of that. If you remember, his name used to be Saul. He was a different person. But after he died to himself, after he was made alive in Christ, no longer Saul, but Paul. Now, when Paul writes about this resurrection, oftentimes we think of this resurrection that's going to happen in the future, right? We know about this future physical resurrection that you and I are going to have when Jesus comes back and he's going to restore all things. We saw that in the gospel messages. And so when we think resurrection, we think future, a day where you will be glorified, a day where you will be perfectly blameless. But the way that Paul's writing Colossians 3, he writes as if the resurrection for you and I already happened. The way that he phrases each word, you are already resurrected. You are already made alive in Christ. You are already in heaven. And that should cause us to ask, how can that be? If our resurrection is going to be in the future, how can you say that we are already resurrected now? And what Paul's saying is, yes, physically, what you see with your eyes, that's in the future. But in Christ, spiritually, you are made alive. Spiritually speaking, you do not belong here. You no longer reside on this earth. Spiritually speaking, your souls, your heart is in heaven where Jesus is. It makes sense. If you're united with Christ by faith, you are where Christ is, who is in heaven. And in that sense, he says, consider yourselves 
already resurrected in heaven, in Christ. You are holy. You are beloved. You are compassionate. You are kind. You are humble. You are meek, even though you don't know what that word means. You are loving. In that spiritual sense, you are already these things. And he says, in light of that, let your mind go up there. Think about those things. Dwell up there because that's where your true self resides. Do you see what he's trying to do here? He's trying to get our focus not on ourselves and put our minds and our focus where Christ resides. Verse 2, set your mind on heavenly things. And the sense of this phrase is to set your aspirations, your thoughts, your hopes, everything, honoring God, extolling Christ, enjoying our salvation, showing Christ's love to others. I love the way that the King James Version puts it. It says, put your affections in heaven. Is that where your affections are? How often do we get so bothered when we see things of this world not turning out the way we want it? And Paul's saying, if your mind, if your heart is in heaven, regardless of what circumstance comes your way, you're going to have joy like no other. You're going to be a light to others. D.A. Carson, a former professor at Trinity, he says, and I'll say it twice because it takes some time to really let what he says marinate. He says, you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. Again, I have to say that twice, I know. You are not what you think you are, but what you think, the things that you think about, that's who you are. And what he's saying is, instead of thinking about who you are, okay, I'm inadequate, I failed at this, I'm this, A, B, C, just stop thinking about yourself. Think about the things you already are in Christ. And once your mind is up there, you're going to see yourself becoming more like Jesus. That's what he's saying. There's a difference between thinking about how I'm doing, how I'm failing, how I am succeeding. And he's saying, just stop thinking about that. And constantly think about who you already are in Christ, in heaven. And once your mind is up there, you will find the rest of yourself following. That's what he's saying. Let me explain how this happens in real life. One of the things that I always struggled with uh, was a, a critical attitude. And especially back at West Philly, when I was in the back, just monitoring the worship service, there are so many things that I would pick up that bothered me. Every time the guitarist played a wrong chord, I wanted to go up there and say, give me that, play it. Every time the, uh, 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 the ushers gave the offering plate in this kind of lethargic manner, I wanted to be like, get away, this is how you do it. And throughout that time, I had to repent a lot because every single time I was so critical about this and this. And not only in church, but in everything else. And I just kept these thoughts to myself, just judging people left and right to the point where I said, you know what, this needs to stop. This is killing me inside. So I did what I thought a pastor did. I memorized Bible verses. I prayed. And I put so much focus. My prayer request is to be less critical every day for a few months. And I saw no change because I was so focused about myself, of being non-critical. In a few months, I met this older Christian brother, and he was the opposite of me. He was the most patient, most forbearing, most non-critical person I've ever met. 
and just having a few meals with him, without focusing on myself, I realized, and people have told me, Luke, you're becoming more patient and more forbearing. And I realized it's not because I put so much attention on myself, but my mind and my thoughts was with someone else. And as a result of that, I was becoming like him. Do you see how that works? If your thoughts are on Christ day in and day out, you will become like him. The other day, someone said that me and Joanna are starting to look alike. And I said, what? (laughs) Because supposedly, if you spend a lot of time with someone, you start to look alike. That's what happens in gospel change. If your heart and your mind and your soul is constantly with Christ, you will be meek, you will be kind, you will be patient. You're not what you think you are, but whatever you think of, you are. B.B. Warfield, he's a very well-known theologian, he says, in a high and true sense, because we have died to sin and having been raised to holiness, Look at the tense of his words. We have already passed out of earth to heaven. Heaven is already the sphere of our life. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. And we have the life appropriate thereto to live. Your identity is up there. And if that's where your citizenship is, what does a citizen do? He's concerned with the things at home, his home country. That's where your affairs are, right? The other week, I went to a Sixers game with my wife, and as soon as they sang the Star Spangled Banner, I was up saying, oh, say, can you see? And my wife was sitting down, looking on Twitter, and I said, stand up. And you know what she said to me? Not my country. (laughs) Because she's still a resident alien. But I'll tell you what, as soon as she hears something on the news regarding Samsung, her ears perk up. Something about North Korea, her ears perk up. Why? That's where her citizenship is. If you're a citizen of heaven, then the things of heaven should matter to you the most, not the things of this earth. And if you place your heart where you reside, you will start to become the heaven. We say gospel is not just about getting into heaven, but getting heaven inside of you. I want to give one practical example of how this happens. As you're seeking the spiritual things every day, starting tomorrow, there's a a, a mother by the name of Rachel Wilson. And she wrote this book called Life Unexpected. And the reason why she wrote it and entitled it that way, uh, she has three kids, and two of them are mentally handicapped. One of them with autism and the other one with a disease that I don't even know about. But she writes this book because it's a reflection of her journal entries. And I want to read to you what she writes on one particular day. She says, you know, I can have the perfect schedule with my children. I could have the perfect life that takes care of their needs. But regardless of how well things are going, if my mind is not settled toward God as the author of it all, and if I'm not putting God first, I might as well quit. If Zeke, her son, 
If Zeke is running laps and flapping his hands in one corner, and Anna, my daughter, she's wandering around in circles, grinding her teeth in another, and the floor in our living room looks like the results of an explosion happened. But if through it all, my thoughts are ordered, and I I am able to see my circumstances in a God-shaped way, then the true battle is already being won. Because I can have days in which I win several fake battles, but in doing so, I can lose the true one. She's talking as if her citizenship is up there, where that's what matters, regardless of what you see down here. That's what Carson's talking about. Set your mind on the things above. That's the battle, and it's already won in Christ. So if you have 20 frustrating moments and times in your day, that's 20 times where your mind can go up to heaven and say, I've won. Opportunities for you to praise your God in heaven. Going back to Franklin, after he talked with his friend, his friend said, Franklin, before you leave, Can I give you one more suggestion? He says, what? You need to add one more thing on your list. He says, what is that? He said, humility. (laughs) As if he didn't hurt him enough. So he has 13 virtues. So in his journey, he writes, number 13, humility. Be like Jesus and be like Socrates. He wasn't a Christian. In his mind, he thought the most humble person that he can think of was Jesus and Socrates. Can you imagine how that went for him? Jesus did not come to earth to simply be a role model for you. He came to earth to accomplish what you could not do. And day in, day out, you start with the indicative of that. As C.S. Lewis says, one day you're going to look back and say, wow, I've changed. Let's pray.